Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. On this episode, we'll be discussing the theme of defiance through the Hunger Games. Nice pausing for effect. Thank you. Slash forgetting what our topic is. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So let's start off with a question for ourselves. Yes. Do you have a memory of when you were particularly defiant? I feel like I was pretty defiant in general. Just life. (laughs) Just life, like growing up and probably very much so now too. I was pretty defiant of gender norms when Mm. I was a kid. Uh, Or not necessarily a kid kid, but like when I was in high school and things like that. Which... I pretty much still am, I guess. But apparently there is a memory I don't have myself, but my mom tells me Hmm. about that when I was like really young, she tried to dress me in some pink frilly dress and I was just like, no, (laughs) and like I would not have it. So, yeah. It's amazing intense, exactly like you. Yep. (laughs) I am much more likely to wear a pink frilly dress than you are. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, you look good right now, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> For me, I think that I think I was the most defiant when I was in student government at PCC, mm. at City College. Probably in large part because I felt like I was representing others, and so like mm. I felt more empowered to be defiant. But I definitely stood up to the administration quite a bit, and and even to the faculty. Mm. I was just thinking about a memory of when I was in a in a committee meeting where we we're supposed to be deciding how to change or whether to change class sizes. And mm. this is at the time in, in, after the recession when classes were super impacted and there's wait lists for everything. And teachers were trying to lower or to lower class sizes in this meeting, but they weren't using the right kind of rationale for it. You know, it was supposed to be pedagogic rationale. And that's not the reasons they were using. They were using more facilities-based rationale. And so I was, the, I was the only student in the committee and I was the only one voting against lowering these class sizes because of it because of this like, like i felt like they weren't used to stretch all, and they kept trying to compromise and this is one of the few times where, you know me typically <laughs> compromise is my thing you, yeah. i see you compromising i'll be like yeah i appreciate that thanks let's do let's find this compromise <laughs> this is the one time i was just like no like we should not be doing this at all and i was i was definitely very very defiant so by lowering class sizes would they then just be accepting less people into, into school no no so that class those classes would be open to fewer students so instead mm-hmm. of being 36 students they wanted to lower it to like 28 or something so basically a lot of students wouldn't be able to get the classes that they need exactly so they've got, got five it. five of those classes available then they're only going to have you know 40 less seats yeah. available in those and classes. while obviously it's way better to have a smaller class size for mm-hmm. like the students learning you know why don't we just lower the amount that the top administrators are making Obviously. you know yeah there's there's other things at play <laughs> and like i typically am totally in on board with lowering class sizes but yeah. at the same time if they're not coming to the meeting saying i cannot teach 36 students because mm-hmm. of these pedagogic reasons these reasons that infringe on teaching they're just coming in and saying this room isn't big enough for it or these mm-hmm. rooms have these issues like it was set up for a reason with that number you know like there's there's no reasons that they're explaining as to why they cannot teach it well with that mm-hmm. size. It's totally possible that's the case. And if they presented that evidence, I would totally be on board. Mm-hmm. That's not the evidence they're presenting. Yeah. And I was the only one kind of standing up there in a room full of 
professors, some of which I had as my teachers. And I was the only being like, no, like on behalf of students, we have students waiting in line to get in classes trying to transfer and Mm -hmm. they're going to be less able to do that because of this reason that you are not providing the correct justification for. Yeah. It's a complex issue for sure, but it just kind of sticks out in my mind as one of the few times where I definitely like, did no. not compromise. <laughs> um, so it wasn't defiance for defiance sake, but it certainly yeah, was defiance. For sure. Speaking of defiance for defiance sake, <laughs> this week we've got a lot of that. <laughs> what? <laughs> defiance and Hunger Games, definitely, obviously for good reason, but also uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely not willing to compromise for sure. <laughs> yes. And so let's start off with a, a great quote from chapter seven of The Hunger Games, the first book in the trilogy. One of the most famous scenes at the end of Katniss's evaluation by the judges when uh, their, their, the pig had arrived, their, their new food, and they weren't, weren't really paying attention to Katniss, which she felt slighted by. Suddenly, I'm furious that with my life on the line, they don't even have the decency to pay attention to me, that I'm being upstaged by a dead pig. My heart starts to pound. I can feel my face burning. Without thinking, I pull an arrow from my quiver and send it straight at the game maker's table. I hear shouts of alarm as people stumble back. The arrow skewers an apple in the pig's mouth and pins it to the wall behind it. Everyone stares at me in disbelief. Thank you for your consideration, I say. Then I give a slight bow and walk straight towards the exit without being dismissed. So Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Definitely some <laughs> defiance there. Um, but seriously, so, so great. And such a great scene. That I, bow at the end is, is part of my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so great. Because it's like, my life is on the line. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be judging me so you can provide some score that'll help me get sponsors, that'll make people want to go in league with me. And you're just more interested in your dinner. Yeah. And it's not like, like she wants to be there. You know, like not. I am a part of this terrible system that you are putting mm-hmm. on f- and you literally are laughing about it and caring more about what you're eating than the fact that I might die here. Right. Probably there's also this element is like they go in chronological order. Mm-hmm. And so the tributes from District 12 they're always in this position where the game makers are just bored by now and not paying attention to them. So they're mm. always going to get, like, not great scores or they're, I mean, whether they have skills or not, mm-hmm. right? That people just aren't even paying attention to evaluate them. Or at least it's another thing that's going to make it more difficult yeah. for them. And the, the woman or the girl is always last, mm-hmm. right? So it's just adding to the frustration of the situation. Yeah. And so I, I totally see that frustration. And I think that she, like... One of the great things about Katniss is how she responds to those kinds of things. Because mm-hmm. she's just like, she's not going to take it. Like, she Absolutely. has limited power, but she's going to use that power to make a statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not any, like, violence against the game makers, right? She could have killed the head game maker, right? Mm-hmm. She could have just, like, done that right then. Seneca Green is gone. But the point was being defiant, not killing people. Exactly. Yeah. Good quote. Well, I've got a character... Ooh. Who shows defiance? Who's that? Katniss Everdeen. What? Yeah, gasp. <laughs> but this was the only account of her ever showing defiance. It really is. Yeah, this is the one time. No, she is absolutely one of the most defiant characters I think I've ever read. Yeah. Which is really, it. really wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's one of the reasons why she becomes the Mockingjay is mm-hmm. because she does not accept things, you know? And... and I think it's interesting coming because we see the books through her perspective. 
mm-hmm. where she herself says that, you know, she doesn't understand Peta's defiance in the first book where he wants to hold on to something, you know, mm-hmm. and she's just caring about living. And that, that makes sense. She's caring about living. And, and even here, like it's, it's focused on her life is on the line, but it's also, I think comes with this context of like, she understands that she is in this ridiculous situation, this absurdly dark and terrible game that is, she's being forced to play for her life. And when people don't take that as seriously as it needs to be, which the capital does not do for the most part, she refuses to just go along with it whenever she can. And and I really, really love that defiance. Of course, she also is just defined generally to people <laughs> um, from the beginning. And, and that's how she gets Hamish on her side too, like mm-hmm. being defiant to him. And he's like, oh, there's actually some interesting things going on here. So yeah, I, I think that her defiance is very much a core defining characteristic for her. It's interesting how much of her defiance is almost like activated through emotion, Mm. right? Like she was just so furious and then she does some action that sometimes afterwards she's like, oh no, what did I do? I am going to die now or, you know, whatever it is. But like that defiance just kind of comes out of her, which is, I don't know, I think really interesting and kind of makes me wonder if defiance can be planned. Mm. Or if it more organically happens as some act of like, I'm not thinking three steps ahead. I'm going to defy this injustice or this system or whatever it is like now. I mean, I I think there's like civil disobedience and stuff, obviously, Mm. where where you do have that. But I don't know, just kind of an interesting question because I feel like so much of her defiance is this. It's not premeditated. It's just it happens when she kind of gets to the end of her rope and it's just like, no, I I don't care what happens to me for this. Like, I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's not it's not like it's the end of a rational choice. You mm-hmm. know, it's not uh, she thinks, you know, sure, she thinks it might work with the berries, but it's not like she's like, this is what I'm going to do because I've weighed the pros and cons. It's just like, this is hopeless. This is terrible. This is my only hope. And I'm going to do it to give a finger to the capital at the very least. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what happens, they'll know that they don't own me, you know, in the way yeah. that, that Peta kind of mentioned to her at the beginning. And I do, I appreciate that too. I, I like that she kind of takes that from, like, she, I think she, she takes elements of her defiance from others. Mm-hmm. She kind of is always torn between the defiance of Peta and that of Gale, you mm-hmm. know, where one is much more aggressive and the other is kind of more intentional. And she has both of those inside of her, though I think that she naturally is much more aggressive, but she kind of slides towards that intentional defiance that Peta gives, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, what's your plot? So my plot is the kind of non-violent, beautiful defiance that both Katniss and Peta have with, like, in regard to Rue. And so when Rue is killed, she's just obviously so sad about it, but just, like, struck with how unjust it all is. And I I think from our first episode on The Hunger Games – uh, for injustice, right, or for justice, uh, we write a quote, which was, like, right then, and she starts, like, hearing Gail's voice in her head, and she's mm-hmm. just so angry, and, like, what can I do? And what she does at that moment is just this perfectly beautiful thing of, of gathering flowers and singing a song for her, and in the only way she can, kind of giving this beautiful burial. 
and doing it for for Rue, but also for all of the people back in District 11. And I think that is so beautiful and, and was defiant. She was like, I don't even know. Maybe they won't show this. And when they did the recap at the end of the games, right, and they didn't show that part. They mm-hmm. showed her singing the song and holding Rue, but they didn't show her actually putting the flowers around her and everything uh, because the Capitol knew that that was defiance, mm-hmm. right? And because you're not supposed to see this as murder. You're supposed to just see it as part of this game. And then in, in book two, when Peta for his evaluation by the game makers, he paints that uh, of Rue with the flowers dead. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I just, I wanted to hold them accountable even for just a moment of what they did to this person. And yeah, I just, I love that beautiful defiance that, is in yeah it's it's completely nonviolent, but it's holding accountable and it's saying this isn't okay and yeah it's it's the one of the only things that they had within their ability to do mm. at the time but they took the opportunity and they did it yeah i think that uh that that definitely shows that kind of intentional defiance that Peter mm-hmm. has you know where it's it's not just I'm going to defy you in the most abrasive way possible, which Katniss is much more likely to do, you know? It's <laughs> With really... the Seneca Crane uh, dummy that she hangs. Exactly. You know, I think that for her, it's much more, or I'm sorry, for him, it's much more about really having emotional statements. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from the empathy that Peta has so much of, which I really appreciate, you know? he He is able to not only use that to connect with people, but to play and manipulate people <laughs> so well because he really understands how people feel and how and, and how people work. And he has this intense emo- empathy for people, which I, I really, really love about him, even as he uses it to affect people and manipulate people in certain ways. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So you like how people manipulate people? I mean, I like seeing PETA manipulate people for his goals because his goals tend to be good i think manipulation isn't always terrible i think that that it's a good thing to manipulate people to do the right thing but i think that obviously it's problematic and it's fraught you know you don't want to manipulate someone to make to make them lose their own agency but you want Mm -hmm. to do want to manipulate them so that they can so that they're faced with something exactly and then they have to make a choice yeah and hopefully you'll make a choice that you are that that is the right choice that you're advocating for, you mm-hmm. know? Because sometimes, because people won't always get there on their own. And so helping to guide them there can be a form of manipulation. Hmm. So what is your compelling question for me? Ooh, good question. When looking at the defiance of the rebels, I want to know how much does defiance rely on power? Mm. And how defiant could anyone have been, the rebels within or without the capital, have been without the power of 13 backing them? Yeah. Hmm. I think without 13 backing people, a lot of the defiance... I mean, there was. There were uprisings, right? So there was a lot happening before 13 even really came on the scene to do anything. But I think a lot of it would have been... Yeah, those smaller acts of defiance, like we were just talking about, that wouldn't necessarily have the same effect in any way of toppling a government, but 
would have would have still been defiance for sure and i don't know i kind of wonder i think 13 definitely shows defiance in some ways but in other ways i kind of just wonder if it's just war Hmm. you know and and is that defiance or is that just using violence to whatever end you want and i i don't know that coin was defiant i think she was manipulative i think she used things that looked like defiance to get what she wanted which was more power and control and yeah a different system but a system that she was the head of Mm -hmm. right and so i don't really see that as defiance Hmm. i don't know what do you think yeah i think there's some some elements of truth there i think that kind of what we were talking about earlier defiance kind of typically comes from an emotional state and so i think that that's why they needed the mockingjay is to inspire that emotional reaction of defiance within and outside the capital but without that they still also had that power of district 13 backing them and so without that they could have had uprisings they could have had you know small acts of defiance but even katniss's defiance would only go so far without 13 breaking them out at the end of the second book right mm-hmm. and so i think that that's definitely some interesting interrelations there mm-hmm. of how power and defiance work together can work together because defiance without power can obviously have much less effect and i think that though emotions and emotional responses to things make it so people act less rationally mm-hmm. in large-scale issues there's also the issues of rational choice and so how much does defiance mean if you don't have power to back it up right how much in Mm -hmm. in the idea of a rebellion or evolution can you revolt against something without the idea of what could come next i think that without that idea of what could come next there's a higher cost of revolution where instead of it being i want this instead of this you are just so upset with the status quo that you're willing to topple it for whatever comes next it's more like I just don't want this. Exactly. And I think that people, without knowing what could come next, people tend to be less willing to defy without understanding that, that having that additional power structure of what you could actually, your defiance could mean. Yeah. Which kind of leads me to my compelling question, which goes back to PETA being like, I'm trying to figure out some way to show them that they don't own me, that I'm more than just a piece in their games. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I've been thinking about that idea in terms of what would that mean for people like in real life? Hmm. What does that mean for us to be defiant in that way? To like be like, you don't own me, government, or whatever is happening. And I kind of think of examples of like people burning their draft Hmm. uh, notices, right, during Vietnam of just like, I'll take whatever consequences come, but I do not stand for this and I won't be a part of it. Mm. And and yeah, it wasn't like, oh, if I do this, then the government will change their mind and like these other things will happen. It's just like, I can't be a part of this because it's wrong, mm. right? So the question is like, regarding Peter's quote, how do, how do people do in that our society? in our society? That's a, that is an interesting question because I think I think that the two th- examples that come to mind for me right now, one is internal and one's external. Mm-hmm. Or I think one is a kind of internal defiance against the idea of the the kind of the employee, right? That you are an employee of 
whatever you're working for, right? Whatever corporate structure, right? You're just a worker bee. You, you don't have that kind of specialness. And I think that, that the rise of things like spirituality and things like that, that are much more personal mm-hmm. ways of looking at the world is kind of a defiance of that paradigm of, you know, you are just a member of the proletariat or you're just a member of whatever working class you're a part of, right? But it's like, no, you have whatever uniqueness and whatever thing that, that, that points you out. Funnily enough, I think that also sometimes makes it so people are less likely to actually be defiant against the structures themselves because it's so internal, because they're just thinking, they're less likely to what Marx would call get class consciousness of being like, I'm going to form a labor union to fight for my rights because then it's just like, oh, I feel more comfortable because I have my own spiritual or personal or whatever kind of ideas. Got it. But I think on the other hand, there's also defiance in real life that's external, which isn't entirely for the greater good always either. The example that comes to mind for me right now is how in a lot of like lower income communities of color that are distrustful of the police, they will not Mm -hmm. come forward with information about a case or what have you because they are defying the system that is unfair against them, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though it will, it may lead to someone who committed a crime going free, you in defying the system are kind of helping that person. Mm -hmm. Still that defiant about this larger system and not just this individual is I think a powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's in, in my mind now because the new season of Serial is kind of dealing with a lot of these issues. And and so it's, it's I think, really fascinating to see how that defiance plays out because in some ways you might think justice is not being obtained, mm-hmm. but it's also defiance against an inherently unjust system. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was thinking about the question, I was just like, sometimes it just feels like there's not that many ways you can be defiant Mm. because there's like so many like laws and regulations for or against like everything. And so you can be defiant and break laws and take the consequences for it for sure. But yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. I was thinking of this example of like this big community garden that happened in LA and the city was like oh no i'm sorry you can't have that there mm-hmm. like even though the, the plot was not being used for anything right and all of these people were benefiting from growing their own food and in a lot of ways like bypassing like corporate mm-hmm. control over food and agriculture and you know in the end they bulldozed it right because they're like no i'm sorry you can't do this and so to me that's another like awesome beautiful way of being defiant of like no i'm bypassing these structures Mm -hmm. that you have set up to control me and so i'm not going to be reliant on that but yeah i think it's really hard to do yeah i think it's it's very very difficult and i think a lot of times defiance does kind of take a community like that that example that you gave you know Mm -hmm. like if you just start making your own garden and then it gets bulldozed by the city like yeah that sucks and there's some defiance Mm -hmm. there but when it's a community kind of project you see a lot more of that uh that that power even where we live just uh several blocks over there is like a little garden Mm -hmm. and you see people in it like growing things and and so yeah i think sometimes when communities come together they can they can do that but yeah it's rough it is i don't i don't think governments like defiance yeah i think that uh, (laughs) I, i would definitely be on board with that statement
<laughs> dear. Well, my missed opportunity is all about Madge. Oh, yeah. Because I think that especially as we go through the books and we learn more about the pin, the Mockingjay pin that Madge gives to Katniss. Mm-hmm. I think I wish that they could have shown more about how that was a defiance on her part. I think it's presented so much as just a token to show her friendship and then mm-hmm. to also hearken back to her aunt who participated in the games, right? But I think that, you know, Madge understands, I think, what this means more even than Katniss does in the first book. For sure. And I wish they really had at least one conversation between Madge and Katniss that really goes into like, oh no, I gave that to you because I thought this is unfair and I can't believe this was happening to you and I wanted to show in some way this as defiance mm-hmm. in the same way that kind of PETA talks about. And, and we don't really see those kinds of conversations with Madge, even after they become friends in the second book. And I, I wish they that we would have seen more of that, because I think that kind of defiance from a character like that would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure, especially someone who is the mayor's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and has a higher status, but still sees the injustice and wants to do what little she can about it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the fact that the movies didn't even have Madge. Yeah. It's just right. really sad. Mm-hmm. Ugh. She just bought the pin at the hob. Or, like, yeah. got it at the hob. Yeah. No. That's not what happened. No, because, and that's the thing, is that it makes everything, like, circumstantial, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that in the first book, maybe it could seem kind of circumstantial that, oh, she's wearing this pin, and this pin also does happen to have this other meaning. But. That's the thing is I think that it was a statement by Madge. Mm-hmm. And, I agree. And I think that that's great that you can see that between the lines, but I don't know. That would be something I, I, I would appreciate seeing more of. Mm. Yeah, totally. So mine is actually kind of funny in relation to what we just talked about with our own defiance in our past. Mm-hmm. So mine is that is with the movies. Gasp. I know. Because I think the books in general do define so well in so many different ways that it was kind of like, oh, where's the missed opportunity? But when they did the movies in the very last one, which I know you haven't watched yet because you're a terrible podcaster. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you tell them that? My secret. I'm pretty out. Haven't you already mentioned that? It's possible. <laughs> Anyways. So I think... Throughout the books, in in I think a large part of the movies too, they have this great defiance, like this gender defiance mm-hmm. of Katniss. Like she does not conform to any stereotypical or any type of role that would be related to gender. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, which will be a surprise to you, so they 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 show a scene from that. Uh, epilogue and instead of it being like Katniss watching PETA playing with her two kids like out in the field or whatever and they're like running around having fun they have her holding this baby as she's watching her other kid play with PETA so she's like holding this baby and she's in a flowery dress oh no and I'm just like 
what just happened? Like you just 100% domesticated her when she was this fiery, defiant. I mean, for a long time, she didn't even want to have kids or do Mm -hmm. any of this because she's like, this system is so terrible. And like, yeah, now there's a population problem because everyone's dead and we might not be able to survive. And so things changed, right? But then they... Yeah, they just, they took away that defiance of this disobedience of gender roles and they just completely put it back in and it made me really angry. I can understand why. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is very frustrating, particularly because in the books, the epilogue wasn't about her, like, it specifically was not about her really leaning into a motherly gender conforming role it was about how sure she moved on she started a family she did these things with Peta, but how difficult it was for her Mm -hmm. and how much she struggles along every step of the way and i think part of that is struggling against this idea of motherhood it's the reason why Mm -hmm. she's not playing with the kids Peta is exactly exactly she's just watching it happen yeah and she still has to remind herself of good things Mm -hmm. you know she still has to like list them in her mind yeah often and so I, I felt like they just completely took that away and just made her like, oh, well, now she's happy because she has a baby, yeah. which is not what happens. So, yeah, I can gross. see why you'd be upset with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty yep. yucky. Yes, indeed. Well, I guess we should move to our lessons learned, our takeaways from this conversation. Do you have one that comes to mind? Well, I was just talking, so now you have to. But I don't have one yet. Oh, well, that's bad. I guess. <laughs> It's going to make really good audio. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I would say that my takeaway is, yeah, kind of thinking about different ways of being defiant mm. and creative ways of doing it because obviously there there's marchers and there's all sorts of things that you can participate in and kind of especially when it comes now a week after some significant news has come from um, Washington I think there's a lot of people who want to be defiant and they are defiant, but trying to find ways of doing it. So I think my takeaway is just kind of looking at the book and all these different ways of which they did defiance, whether directly or kind of indirectly, I guess to kind of think about is the life that I'm leaving leading are the things that I do on a daily, monthly, yearly basis defiant of the things that I don't agree with. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I think my takeaway is kind of going back to that idea of of the, the spectrum of defiance between kind of emotional and intentional defiance, you mm-hmm. know, this idea of kind of which side are you on or, you know, how reactionary is your defiance, you know, mm-hmm. even and reactionary defiance doesn't mean you get bad defiance, obviously, you know, you can be reactionary and still be reacting to a terrible thing and, and defy mm-hmm. it in that that way but neither is i think intentional defiance and wholly better because i think that it, it can sometimes be so quote-unquote rationalized that it becomes less defiance and more manipulation or control mm-hmm. in a different way and so kind of looking at defiance and especially as i'm studying in grad school different elements of history like looking at times of defiance and revolution as part of the kind of laying on this spectrum Mm-hmm. is I think something that, that I'll probably take forward and look look at in a little bit more of a uh, investigative light. Yeah, and I think I think too 
is really interesting to think about defiance kind of in general of like acts that people do and movements that people are a part of but then intersectionally how that changes defiance based on what community you're from Mm -hmm. um what race you are what gender expression you are you know all of these things and how defiance looks different depending on on those factors yeah well i think that wraps up our discussion of defiance and hunger games would you like to give us what our theme will be next week when we talk about avatar the last airbender indeed we're gonna be talking about love love and avatar that's gonna be really nice that's gonna be adorable (laughs) okay great well i'm looking forward to that definitely well thanks for listening to this week's episode of geek between the lines you can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. You can also go to our website, bit.ly slash geekbetweenthelines, or go to our Patreon site at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pestel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. With that, we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.